Welcome to the first episode of Highly Unlikely. I'm your host, Jonathan Flannis. In this show, we'll be offering a series of the most incredible stories you've never heard. Each episode will explore a new topic, including the history of the issue at hand, followed by the incredible true story that accompanies it, as told by my guests. The stories you'll be hearing range from the nail-biting to the hilarious, the tragic to the uplifting. Stories that give you a window into some of life's most shocking moments. With that being said, some episodes may cover topics that can be a little intense and possibly upsetting to some listeners. However, if you give them a chance, you might come away with something you didn't expect. Thank you for listening to Highly Unlikely. Enjoy the story. Episode 1, Heroin and the Jewish White Supremacist, Part 1. The year is 1895. The paved streets of New York City are swarming with residents in the humid summer sunlight. Street vendors hug the sidewalk, selling potatoes, French bread, and salami. Residents cycle in and out of cramped, dank tenements. Italian, Irish, and German immigrants squeeze into sweaty, tiny apartments as entire families share a single room. Grover Cleveland presides over a country slowly bouncing back from the destruction of the Civil War, and the economy is buoyed by increasing number of willing laborers and improving industrial technologies. However, all is not well in the cities of America, as a newly accessible drug named morphine has exploded on the East Coast. The drug is used by doctors for a number of different ailments, ranging from coughing in children to the treatment of alcoholism. By the end of the 19th century, it's becoming increasingly clear that morphine is incredibly addictive and a thriving black market emerges as doctors respond by reflexively cutting off the prescription to those now dependent on the drug. It is in this chaos that the company Bayer, later famous for the creation of Advil, synthesizes a new drug called diacetylmorphine. Bayer markets this new drug as providing the powerful pain relief achieved by morphine, but without any addictive properties. Viewed as a drug to make heroes out of its users, the company calls the new medication heroin, and it hits the streets across the country. When I first started doing heroin, it's it's very euphoric and it's very, it's just the answer to everything. I mean, it's the answer to every problem I've ever had. This is Jared Clickstein. Well, to, to really talk about my history with heroin, I have to begin with my parents' history of heroin because both of my parents were heroin addicts. It starts with the Vietnam War, which it started in what, 60, they started drafting people maybe in 64 or something like that. So my dad was born in 1953 in Boston, Massachusetts. And um, when he was about 12 years old, his older, his friend's older brother started coming back from Vietnam addicted to heroin. And they would be in wheelchairs or they would have broken arms or whatever and some of them would have missing limbs and they would pay my dad and his friends to do errands for them like you know run to the store or something like that and they would pay them in cigarettes or whatever or change and and one time my dad did an errand for for one of these heroin addicted veterans and he paid him in a line of heroin like my dad snorted some heroin or or he shot it or something so that was when he was a he was about 12 Jared Lair told me that his dad's first arrest for heroin possession happened at the age of 12. For most of Jared's upbringing, his parents were able to use drugs and function pretty well. 
but that only lasted so long and things fell apart. Really, by 1998 or something, they, they, my, they, my mom's friend showed her how to cook crack and, and they started, my mom started smoking crack and she showed my dad and um, by like 2001, they, I was like, I was 12 and we were, I was wearing the same size pants as my dad and my mom. My family stepped in and pressured my parents to agree to go to rehab and I would move to Oakland, California with my aunt. And they agreed to it. And then that night they went out to get high and they got arrested. They assaulted a police officer together. So Jared's family move him across the country to live with his aunt and his parents agree to go to rehab. So things are looking up until something horrible happens. And then in 2003, June, my mom overdosed on heroin and died. And that was kind of the turning point, I guess, for my dad. I mean, he, he lost his mind for about six years. I mean, he couldn't even, I mean, th he was married to my mom for like 25 years and knew her since they, were, they went to middle school and high school together and everything. And, and um, he, he really lost his mind. But, but when my mom died, I, I, you know, I was sad. I didn't grieve properly. I, I, I grieved in an unhealthy way, I, I'd say. But um, what one thing that became abundantly clear was that I could get away with things now, now that my mom, because who would punish a kid whose mom just died? So I, I remember that thought like, okay, now I can get high and, and drink and not get in trouble. Like many heroin addicts, Jared's addiction started with an injury. And then I got my wisdom teeth pulled and they gave me like a big bag of, of, um, of Percocet. And I, enough that I, when I ran out, I didn't like the way I felt. Opiate withdrawal is basically the worst flu you can imagine times a thousand. So you're freezing one moment on fire the next. Uh, you have to run to the bathroom every five minutes. You're throwing up. It's just a nightmare. When I first started doing heroin, it's it's very euphoric and it's very, it's like a warm kind of blanket that covers you and there's no fear. It's just the, it's basically the absence of fear. It's just the answer to everything. I mean, it's the answer to every problem I've ever had. It, it and, and I can't really put that into words, but every anxiety, every feeling of um, insecurity, every feeling of inadequacy just, just disappears immediately. I, I used to work at a pawn shop in Florida and um, and a mother and a son came in and pawned a PlayStation 3 and they looked normal and um, but they were I could tell something they needed the money and they were kind of acting weird and, and I had to look at all the items when I would intake things for pawn and I opened up the bag and they were full of dirty needles and all this thing and it was like a 17 year old kid and his mom from the suburbs in, in Fort Lauderdale and um, so it just, it, you know, Oxycontin hit that, that area really hard. Just imagine once you start delving into the addiction and you start losing everything and all of a sudden things like, how am I going to pay my rent? Or, you know, I just robbed my cousin or, you know, things like that. Like real problems start coming. Uh, the heroin comes even, even more in handy for to completely blinding you away from your, those kind of problems. And, and the funny thing is that heroin starts to create these problems that it cures. So it's this, it, it's like a deep hole that you just start digging yourself in because 
you spend all your rent money on on heroin so it's the 29th of, of the month and the rent's about to be due uh you've created this huge problem that is uh, heroin's at fault for and the only cure for this feeling is heroin being addicted to opiates involves being constantly aware of where you are in the withdrawal process well when you start doing heroin you hear about oh well, you get physically addicted to it and then you get sick when you don't have it and, and i'd heard you know i'd heard that my parents told me about this and everyone it's common knowledge and um but then you started hearing rumblings of like well if you if you smoke it you, you won't get sick you know smoking it's fun and, and it's manageable so so i started you know i smoked it and i didn't get i it, it took me about six months to really develop that physical addiction to it and once you develop it it's that's it i mean it's it's in you and if you quit for 20 years and then pick it up again for three days you'll, you're you're going to be sick if you don't have it so when jared says sick he's referring to being an opiate withdrawal meaning flu-like symptoms that come every time you're in withdrawal for opiates it's a commonly used word in the opiate community you know it, it's it's pretty standard you're a normal kid and then all of a sudden you're selling all your stuff to get heroin every day and then in your tolerance rises at first you just need ten dollars worth and you need 20 and then you need 40 and then you know and then absolutely everything comes behind heroin um buying food paying your rent maintaining healthy relationships with your friends maintaining relationships with your family as is often the case jared's addiction led to him becoming homeless being from L.A., that meant ending up on Skid Row. It's a national landmark, I think. It, it, I think every American should be required to see it. Skid Row in L.A. is a collection of streets that is filled with homeless people, with people struggling with addiction, with mental illness, and it's just this massive community of people down and out. And for Jared, part of being on Skid Row meant learning how to defend yourself. I'm not a very big person. I, I'm not. A, I'm not very good at. I will fight, but I'm not very good at it. I will defend myself, and and I did down there. And um, fortunately, everyone's on crack, so you're not a physical threat really when you're on crack, when you're strung out on crack. So uh, every fight I got into was just two crackheads punching each other, which really didn't result in anything. Um, until we got tired of punching each other and wanted to smoke crack. Jared told me that his time on Skid Row was incredibly enlightening, both in his understanding of himself, the society around him, and he actually sees his time on Skid Row as a good thing. Yes, yeah, so, so there, in all, there's a lot of racial tension down there. There's, there's not a lot of... Um, it's not a lot of white people down there. It, 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 now, that, that that's another thing. You go down there and, and you're like, now there's got to be... There is some kind of institutional issue going on that that um that, that there's it's it's majority african-american and um i'm under the belief that there's there is sort of a system in place uh, historically uh, of racism in this country and um if if you question that i i would not only go to skid row but talk to some people and then some of these people didn't have a chance and you talk to them about that and you know I, you get to really that that was the coolest part of living on skid row was actually being immersed with uh, the culture and uh, the culture of poverty and um african-american culture in los angeles and the history of of gangs and skid row is the kind of place that you will get stabbed for over a dollar or two dollars uh, you'll get stabbed over someone just taking a chance there might be two dollars in your pocket Jared told me that when you're living on the streets 
you essentially find something that fits your appearance. So a story that people can relate to and empathize with. So I need to get back to college. Uh, I'm a veteran. Uh, anything that fits your appearance and might help you. Well, when, when I went down to Skid Row, it was Occupy Wall Street times. It, there was the Occupy LA movement and, and I went down there and I look like a white college kid because I am a white college kid, but I'm a white college kid that is has a severe drug addiction. So I got to blend into this Occupy LA movement like I mean, it was beautiful. You know, I was, I would like make signs and pretend to give a shit about things. And, uh, and these, these white kids that were like living on downtown to, as like a form of political protest, like thought I was there too, for the same reason. And Jared would use these acting abilities to get what he thought he could from you. Cause they, on the weekends, they'd like go, they'd park their cars like down the street. They'd live in tents and stuff during the week. And then on the weekends, they'd go to have beach parties and get in their, the cars that their parents bought them and drive away. And, and they'd lock their tents. Like that was going to do anything. And I would cut their tents open and steal, I'd steal MacBooks. I'd steal, I mean, I'd rob any of them. And, and I did, you know, I'd break into their, I knew where they parked their cars and I'd break into them once they went to sleep. And, and I was like this undercover kind of white college kid. And Mexican gang members that were also kind of trying to do the same thing but weren't as good at blending in, they noticed this and we kind of came up mutually with this thing where it's like, well, I can benefit from you guys and you guys can benefit from me. So Jared formed an unlikely friendship. I was sort of adopted by these uh, Southsider Mexican uh, homeless gang members at Occupy Wall Street and started camping with them and, and hanging out with them. And um, I, I, I used... The way I, now I don't really look like that anymore. I mean, drug addiction will event, eventually it will catch up with you and you will not blend in as a, as like a middle-class white college student. You will look like a crackhead. But I was like nice and fresh back then. This was 2011. We've all encountered this next hustle. Someone approaching you at a train station or subway station saying, hey, I just need $5 to travel to blah, blah, blah. I would go up to random passengers that were passing through Los Angeles and say, hey, I am a college student from UC Santa Cruz. I came down here to fight with the 99% and stand up for, for the working man. And I was protesting, but then someone beat me up and stole my money. And I need to go back. I really need to go back for class. I, my, I have class. I need $70 or whatever. And, and people would just hand me money. I mean, people or people would offer to buy me the train ticket and I'd say well I lost my ID and you need an ID to buy the train ticket so will you take me to buy a ticket at the Greyhound station because I knew that you could return a Greyhound ticket for cash uh, and plus most of the time they didn't want to walk with me to the, the Greyhound station so they would just give me money and you know the Occupy movement is what it is and I'm not saying that it didn't stand for something genuine but I was on drugs and just it, it was like and I just hijacked whatever I could out of that movement to just get drugs, to get heroin. Jared became good at reading what each person wanted to feel good about in giving him money. So whether it was a political thing, a personal thing, he was able to find that out and use it. So, you know, you know, I, I'm still smoking heroin at this point. And when you smoke heroin, you, you get very strung out and you start having to smoke just all day and you don't even really get high anymore. You know, you're really just getting well. Getting well is a term used in the opiate community that means getting enough heroin that you're no longer in withdrawal. So you're not necessarily high, but you're not sick. At this time, I was homeless, and something that really helps with homelessness is methamphetamine. So, so I actually did start, you know, her for heroin, it's very common to, to grow out of it. 
because it kind of stops working and it stops getting you high and it really just becomes like food. It's just like a thing that you need every morning and every afternoon and every night. And when you're on meth, you don't sleep. And when you don't sleep, you don't go home. So if you don't have a home, you're not really homeless. You're just awake still. When you're high on meth, you don't sleep. And if you're not asleep, then you can make money. You know, it's very helpful when you're homeless. And um, I was one of them. You know, I lived on Skid Row just like they lived on Skid Row. And if you're a good customer and, and, and then someone robs you, the drug dealer will find out who robbed you and then either talk to them or, or threaten them or eventually hurt them. So there's actually kind of like an unwritten rule that you don't rob. But Jared was starting to experience real health issues. I had a BMX bicycle and, and I'd ride this around because the skin had come off the bottom of my feet uh, completely just from, you know, wearing the same socks for months and not showering and, and walking tens of miles sometimes a day. So, so the BMX bike was like my shoe. I needed it. I couldn't walk. I mean, I really couldn't. So it stuck to me. I didn't get off the BMX unless I unless it was like golden moment. And I, and I did find a golden moment eventually. Unfortunately, Jared's golden moment came very much at the expense of someone else. And I saw a newish Honda, Honda Accord or Honda Civic pulled over and it was running and the lights were on and, and, and this guy was just passed out. He looked like he was 18, 19, 20. You know, he was a young kid who probably came downtown to go bar hopping and party and clearly got too drunk and was trying to get home and didn't know what he was doing and realized oh, I might get pulled over. I'm going to pull my car over and take a nap. And he did it not in a great place. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't, it's not the preferred nap area on Skid Row. So Skid Row is probably the worst place in the world to fall asleep in your car drunk. I saw him and I kind of checked him out and I looked in his windows and stuff to see what, you know, what was going on. And, and I saw that he had an iPhone 4S. It was the brand new iPhone at the time and his doors were unlocked. So I opened his door and I got into his car. Try to imagine some guy clearly homeless getting in your car. And he kind of awoke from this and was clearly very drunk but w and was not happy either. He was like, hey, like, he couldn't really talk, but he was very concerned with me being in his vehicle. And I assured him, don't worry, I'm, I'm here to help you. You know, you're very drunk. You're going to get a DUI, whatever. And then about that moment, two other guys get into the car. They get into the back seat. You now have three homeless guys, one in the front seat and two in the back. And I'm like, hey, what, what are you guys doing? Like, you, got, you can't just come into this car. You know, like I was trying to kind of defend the guy. And they were like, well, what are you doing in the car? And I was like, I'm, I'm helping this guy. And they're like, no, we're going to help him. And I was like, well, I'll help him with his phone and you can help him with his car. Giving them the message like, we're both going to rob him in some way. And rob him they do. I grab his phone. He, he's kind of semi-conscious. He kind of hears the whole conversation and he's not very pleased about it. And I get out of the car and he gets out of the car to chase me to get his phone back. And, and I'm running with no skin on the bottom of my feet. Someone you've never met has grabbed your phone and is now running from your car. Keep in mind, you're very drunk. And now you can't even call the cops. As he's chasing me, the two guys get out of the back seat and get into the front seat and steal his car. So he's like, now he's like, I don't, well, you know, who do I chase? <laughs> uh, and um, I, I don't really remember exactly how it played out, but I just kept running and, and uh, he didn't catch up with me. I, he probably was more concerned about his vehicle. The new phone made Jared a celebrity. I had an iPhone. I was the king of Skid Row. Like I had an iPhone 4S. Um, this was, you know, everyone has an iPhone now. This was kind of like before everyone had an iPhone. And, you know, I, I ended up selling it for nothing and um, had a really fun day and a half as a result of it. 
So at this point, Jared shares with me the most unbelievable story I've ever heard. This is the story that led to me inviting Jared onto the show, just so that you can hear this incredible story. It's a story that includes a lot of intense stuff, so stuff references to drugs and sex and kind of intense things along those lines, but it's absolutely worth the listen. It includes some hilarious parts, some tragic parts. It just got it all, so... If you're still on board, I hope you enjoy the story of the suitcase. This is one of those stories that's not funny and funny at the same time. It's it's a it's the really the scariest thing that's ever happened to me. I had a I had a drug dealer named T-Bone. You know, not surprisingly, he was a drug dealer. So he he did go to jail and his girlfriend started selling drugs for him and and I was like I had grown very close to T-Bone and his girlfriend her name was Chantal and and Chantal started selling drugs for T-Bone but one day I called Chantal and Chantal didn't pick up her phone it was her uncle and I I'd met her uncle one time we helped Chantal move from one crack motel to another crack motel and it was Chantal's phone phone number so I you know I believe you know he, he said Chantal gave me her phone um so now you just come meet me over here and now I'm your drug dealer basically and, and I said okay in her hotel room, Chantal was with her sister. Doing meth in a hotel was not something new to Jared, but in this moment, he noticed that something felt off. You know, it, di- it didn't feel right, really, what was going on. And she said, you know, where have you been? Why haven't you been calling me? And I, and I gave her the story, and it was the, it was the truth. I said, your uncle called me and told me that you were out of town. And she said, oh, you, that, that's, that's your story, huh? You know, she, she was kind of implying that I was, I was lying to her. But, you know, I, I wasn't, so I was completely confident. And, um, and she sucker punched me in the ear. And her and her sister beat the shit out of me for a few minutes. So they beat the shit out of me really bad and then made me get naked. So when they asked me to get naked, I was like, maybe, maybe this is like a sexual thing. Like it's a, I wasn't particularly in the mood. I was like, well, I guess this is, you know, I, beggars can't be choosers. So I got naked and then they, beat, they kept beating the shit out of me. So, so I, I figured, I don't think, I don't think we're going to have sex. <laughs> I don't think this is for sex, but I was trying to talk and they just kept punching me in the face and they, they told me, you know, shut up. And, and, but I was so, I was like very curious, you know, why am I getting the shit beaten out of me by two attractive women? Um, and then made to strip naked, and then they didn't get naked, so I was like, well, this definitely isn't going to be, se- I don't think we're going to have sex, because they're not getting naked. And then they pulled out two, two very large suitcases, and they said, get in one of these suitcases. It's possible there's nothing more nightmarish in life than being told to get in a suitcase. And they would, and and they told me, don't talk. You know, you're gonna get punched if you talk. But who doesn't want to talk in that situation? Who doesn't want to ask a few questions? Like, why am I going to the suitcase? Um, and then you just get punched. And 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 they had weapons. And you know, they had um, Chantal's sister had a big knife. Unsure of what to do and hoping to appease his captors, Jared got into the suitcase. This was a very large suitcase. When I got in the suitcase, they started talking about how they were gonna. They're like, this is great, he fits in the suitcase, we don't have to chop him up before we throw him over the bridge. I had a thought, like, they're just, they're like trying to scare me or something, like, this is so crazy, like, they're not gonna... But then, like, they had been awake for a long time on meth, so, like, really, really nothing was out of the question. Meth is truly unlike any other drug in how insane it makes you. 
but they were having this conversation. I could, I was within earshot. I was in the suitcase, like I, you know, you know, and they were kicking the suitcase, and I was like, you know, I'll get back in the suitcase, but can I get out of the suitcase for now while you guys develop a plan? And Chantel said, "We, we know that this is your, was your plan. He paid you to do it." And I was like, "This is the first I'd heard of that." Jared denied the charge, saying, "Absolutely not. I didn't do that." And they they said they confronted the uncle and they said a, a skinny white white guy with a big sweatshirt stole his phone which is not like the most descriptive uh explanation of who did this but i was a skinny white person you know but it wasn't me it, it really wasn't and and, uh, and i tried to plead with them but they were just they said no talking they'd hit me and, and and i just didn't want to get hit anymore so you know they get a phone call and they bring these these guys into the room and these guys have have gone they show me their guns and um they introduce one of the men to me his name is cousin meth you know what his name wasn't hank and then the other person, the other man, they, he didn't talk at all. That's more frightening too. You know, there's like one guy doesn't talk and he's the larger guy. And then there's the kind of smaller guy, but still very large man with a handgun. His name's Cousin Meth. He's got like multiple personalities, I guess. And he, he, he has mental illness. You know, he has a handgun. And, and he's very nice to me one minute and very, he's screaming at me in a different voice the next minute. So... It's not good if a stable person has a gun and is holding you hostage in a room. And he's freestyling. He he's like extremely good at, at freestyle rapping. And he just won't stop. And he is like blowing my mind. And I'm like, and they're hitting me, telling me not to talk. But I'm like, but cousin, like I gotta tell him, like that's that was a crazy verse that you you know. And he's like thanking me, but he also knows that like, well, I'm also gonna kill this guy. It was hours, you know, we were just kind of, they were smoking meth, they were letting me smoke meth, but I had to keep my arms behind my back and they would kind of twirl the pipe and light it for me, which was nice, you know, that's a courteous move. And also induced a bit of Stockholm Syndrome because they, they were showing me some amount of kindness at that point and even allowing me to, me to talk a little bit. As horrible as Jared's situation was at this point, things are about to get very, very strange. But then Cousin Meth gets a phone call. And they're talking about me and they're like, yeah, he's a white boy. He's like a hundred, you know, you know, he's cute and everything. That's not, you know, he's a little, it's, it's a nice compliment to be told that you're cute. But in this situation, you don't want to be described as cute. Cause yeah, I don't know who's on the other end of that phone, you know? And he's like, yeah, he's like five, seven, five, eight, 130 pounds. What, what color eyes you got? You know, then his other personality comes out and he starts screaming at me. So I, I say, well, they change in seasonally, but you know, they're hazel, I guess. And, um, and he's like, okay. And then he hangs up and he's like, okay, I got to take some pictures of you and send, send this guy some pictures. And I was like, a guy, there's a, it's a guy. Cause it sounds like I'm going to be sold into sex slavery. And I was hoping that it would be a woman, which still wouldn't be fun. I mean that, but it would be better than a guy is purchasing. So a guy wants to purchase me and he's like, you want, you got to take some sexy pictures, you know? And I was like, I don't, I'm not feeling sexy right now. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not feeling, you know, very attractive. Uh, I'm naked in a closet crying and I have blood coming out of my face. You know, they wipe me off and they're like, and I don't want, I'm the, you can't fake a smile in that situation. And they're like, you got to smile. I'm like, I can't, I'm crying. I can't smile. Jared and cousin Meth take countless photos in this surreal photo shoot. And it, you know, they're like, it's going to be real bad if you don't smile. So I'm like awkwardly half smiling in these naked photographs of that cousin, cousin Meth is taking naked pictures of me <laughs> and sending them to this Jeffrey Epstein character on the other line. I don't know who, you know, who, who this guy is. So that's, that's life at that point. I'm like, it's, it's over, you know, I'm going to spend the rest of my life in a, in a human shaped cage. 
and that's my life now. Trying to just accept that um, wasn't wasn't easy. And they told me they're like, we're gonna sell you to a human trafficker. We have some. You're gonna you're gonna have sex. You're gonna have to be a sex slave, basically. Okay, all right. Uh, so we sit there for many hours, and they're trying to make phone calls and trying to sell me. As the sun comes up, Jared notices his captors are starting to loosen up. And at this point, I'm like one of the, I'm part of the crew now. Like we're, <laughs> we're in this hotel room for hours. You know, we already have inside jokes about the, cause I'm like gonna die. So I'm like, I have to, but there's hope. I mean, you know, I'm not, I wasn't, I purposely tried to not look super sexy in the photos that cousin Meth took of me. So I was hoping that was gonna help. They give me a Gator, you know, I haven't, I haven't drank in like eight hours at this point. I'm very thirsty. They give me a Gatorade uh, with the cap not sealed. But the color looked right, so I, I, I started drinking it. It tasted quite salty. I know what GHB tastes like. I've done GHB before, and this Gatorade tastes an awful like, lot like GHB. GHB is known as the date rape drug, used commonly so that victims don't remember what happened. And they're kind of watching me drink it, you know, with their eyes like wide, and they're, they're like, you must, yeah, that's going to quench your thirst right there, boy. And <laughs> But I and I don't want them to know that I know that they're that they're drugging me. They're drugging me with GHB to make me pass out because you know I don't. And I've already been awake for four or five days. This is not you know the math is not adding up in my favor. And now it's like the waiting game for me to pass out for them to do what they want with me. Whether I don't think they're going to do anything sexual with me, but I think they're going to probably murder me and drag me out wrapped in a rug or try to continue to sell me to somebody. Either way, you know, I'm not going to wake up at Disney World. You know, I'm, I'm probably going to wake up somewhere not, you know, in a basement. Jared's captors realize that if he is let go, it's possible the police could find out. But at that moment, something happens that just might help him escape. On the phone is his old drug dealer and Chantel's boyfriend, T-Bone. And T-Bone is not on drugs because, well, he might be on drugs, but he's he's on less drugs because he's in, he's in jail. He's of sober mind. He's calling from a cell phone. You know, he's not calling from a pay phone in jail. They have a lot of cell phones in jail. And um, Chantal's like, like, you won't believe it. Like Jared robbed us. He took my cell phone and sold it to my uncle. So we got him. We got him naked in the hotel room right now. And and uh, and he's like, what the fuck are you talking? Like you have a you have a white boy held hostage in the hotel room he's like they're already looking he's like already been on the news like you can't just kidnap a white white boy but also like just don't kidnap anybody you know so so i think that's where t-bone was coming from because you know when you kidnap anybody you might get in trouble and and he doesn't want chantal to get chantal puts money on his books and sends him ramen noodles and stuff he doesn't want chantal can't send him ramen noodles from prison he's like let me talk to jared so i i get on the phone with t-bone half passed out you know because i'm on you know, got the GHB and everything. And he's like, he's like, what, what the fuck is going on? What did you do? And I was like, T-Bone, I did not do it. You know, I wouldn't do this. This is not a, and he's like, okay, well, I'm going to talk to Chantal and try to talk her out of this, but you guys are pretty far down that road. And I don't know if you can really, you know, this isn't the kind of road you can just backtrack on, you know, but I'll see what I can do. And, and, and I handed the phone to Chantal and he talked through and he, they were screaming at each other. And um, when they got off, she said, okay, this is what's going to happen. At this point, I had lost like my wallet and stuff, so I was carrying carrying around with me a passport. So she had my they had taken everything out of my pocket. I had an I had an iPhone myself actually. I had a three like a jailbroken three GS or whatever, and um, and a bicycle and and a passport. So she said, "I'm not saying that you didn't do this, but I'm not saying that you did either." So T Bones convinced me I'm gonna let you go, 
but we're gonna hold on to your passport, your bike, and your and your phone, your iPhone, until we find out who really did this. And if you go to the police or tell anyone, anybody that that we did this to you, I have your passport, so I know where your family lives, and I'll come, and we're gonna murder your family. What I knew is that. First of all, your a- address isn't on your passport, so they don't know where my family lives. But second of all, I don't think they're going to kill me. I mean, they're not going to come kill my... I don't have family. <laughs> That's another thing. I forgot. I don't have a family. So, um, so I... Okay. So I played into it. I said, oh my God, don't touch my... Please don't come for my family. Okay. I promise, guys. No hard feelings. I get it. Like someone... You know, it wasn't me, but someone ripped you off and I won't say anything. Please just let me go, you know? And... Um, they let me put my clothes back on and they let me go. He walks out of the hotel room into the warm summer day. And um, I got arrested because I was incredibly high on GHB, hadn't been asleep in a long time. And I was, I passed out in a 7-Eleven and they called the police and um, had the choice of going to jail or the hospital and I chose the hospital. He was free free of the hotel, free of Chantal, but most importantly, free of the suitcase. That was the last time I saw Chantal. I hope she's doing okay. But that, so anyway, that, that's where drugs will take you. You know, that, that story, you know, I didn't, I wasn't a child hoping one day, I hope I get kidnapped and almost sold into human trafficking. This is, this is where drugs will get you in. Nothing will get you in that kind of situation except drugs. Jared is now sober and working at a rehab but he never forgets how he ended up in that suitcase. I went there because I wanted heroin. We weren't on the city council together. You know, I wasn't there to talk business with Chantal. I was there to buy heroin. And that's probably the most entertaining situation I've been in, but I've been in darker situations, you know, if you can believe that. Coming up on episode two, we conclude Jared's story as he shares with us his incredible experience in jail, which would be even more shocking than the suitcase. So stay tuned. 